Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. I would argue that in almost every failing industry, the people in the top get hurt last. And so you can milk this cow for a really long time to come if you choose. And a, but a big part of it will be making a commitment to marketing yourself quite aggressively and changing certain parts of how you do what you do in order to increase your market share as the size of the market goes down, right? But, you know, if when we saw, uh, let me think of an example, uh, the music business falling apart, Van Morrison is one of the last guys to get hurt because even though the number of records get bought, get, get bought goes down, people are still going to buy Moondance for a long time to come. So if you're Van Morrison, the answer isn't the minute the music business is in trouble, stop being in the music business and open a bowling alley. The answer might be double down on the music business and understand you might have to go tour more often. You might have to figure out how to generate other streams of income to make up for the fact that you're doing But it's easier for you to do that because you're Van Morrison. Okay? So that's number one. Number two is I don't think there's ever a statement about good or bad or failure or non-failure about a person's decision to quit. This is a strategy decision. It is not a moral decision. So if you decide to quit to go do something else, you should make that decision because you want the thrill of scaling in a growing market, not because you can't think of how to make the existing business legit going forward. Right? If you love what you do, keep doing it and grow it in a different way because the industry is not going to disappear for a while. Okay? On the other hand, if what you love is skiing fresh powder, there's just not as much fresh powder in the book business because there's way more people stamping it down, you may have to step four steps over instead of one step over. But as an industry starts to collapse, there's no question that there's more opportunities within that industry, and those opportunities tend to belong to the person with a track record. So when AOL started to crumble, because AOL was my biggest customer, I had more opportunities to do stuff with AOL, not less opportunities. Because AOL said, we're going from 100 projects a year to 10. Who are they going to give the 10 to? They're going to be more conservative with the 10, so they're more likely to give it to me because I'm safer than they are to give it to some guy who just shows up. Right? So you can pick up a lot of business, for example, at Microsoft, whose business model for the next 20 years is threatened, but they have 20 years before it goes away. If someone has a reputation at Microsoft, the ability to go in there and get more and more contracts goes up. See what I mean? Okay, so that's sort of what I was saying about 
your industry. Not that you need to quit it today, not that you need to quit it today, but that you need to see that it's in disarray, that the boat is slowly sinking and the deck chairs are up for grabs. But if someone who's calm and stands up straight and walks in and starts collecting deck chairs, no one's going to question them because it's the captain. Of course he's allowed to take deck chairs. No money means every time someone pays you $20,000 or $50,000, you're putting it back into growing your company, that the house in the Hamptons is on hold for a long time to come. Because what your market likes to buy is expensive stuff from cash cow leaders. Right? Your market isn't sitting there saying, who's got some new data-driven way we can analyze things and do better tomorrow? That's not what they're... So if you're an insurgent brand, which, is you, which you are, insurgent brands never spin off cash. Insurgent brands always put the cash into becoming cash cow brands. And then after they're a cash cow brand, like Nielsen is, or Comscore is, then you just... Rake, I mean, Comscore hasn't done anything interesting in years. No one wants them to do anything interesting. That's why, not because they suck, because their customers suck. Except for, okay, right, so you put the money back into it. So then how can you possibly not go out and raise the money? Because raising the money is a dip in and of itself. Because the people who are waiting to invest money in you with that, of that size are asking for something you don't have right now. They're asking for stuff that's more locked down, stuff that's better verified, more clients, more cash flow. They're not saying this is like putting a flyer into a $100,000 web startup. They look at the kind of people who have come before you, and every one of those businesses has been boring, straightforward, and accountant-driven. Right? The guys who built SoundScan, the guys who built Nielsen, the guys who run the New York Times bestseller list, those are all companies run by accountants. They're not run by some guy who's a wild-eyed visionary. And so the kind of person who's going to fund you isn't looking for a wild-eyed visionary. So all I'm saying is if you're waiting for the two million bucks, please go prove me wrong. Go raise the two million bucks. I know there's no waiting for two million bucks. Right. So if you can, go for it. I'm just saying I would rather see you do your dog and pony show for customers than do your dog and pony show for investors. Because the dog and pony show is going to be very similar for both. But the customers can give you money tomorrow, and you don't have to pay it back. I think it is essential that you do not rent your friends from Facebook, right? That you need to have a direct, controlled connection between you and your friends, and that group of friends has to get bigger. That first circle has to get bigger. And email is the best tool I know, but if you find a better tool, that's fine. That if we look at Twitter conversion versus email conversion, when you send out a link, email 10, 20 times better. 10 or 20 times as many people will click on a link in an email than click on a link in a tweet. So if you build this connection where 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people want to hear from you by email, that is your asset going forward. What I have found is when everyone can have their own TV show, when everyone can have their own radio show, the equivalent online, it's really easy to decide to become the invisible, uh, no personality conduit. So it's just showing up every week, but it's really me or Dan or Simon, not the host who's saying something interesting. 
Well, the problem with that is those people aren't really adding any value in the world because the reader already knows where to find me. These people aren't showing the guts to say, I have a point of view, I have something to say, and I've, once in a while someone like me shows up, but what's really the future isn't that we need more Charlie Roses, because we don't. What we need are more people who actually have a point of view and are worth following for themselves. So when all these people show up and say, please do this, it'll be really good for you, and I have 400 listeners or 400 readers, I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't want to be selfish, but no, it would be really good for you, because I have more than you, and I know you want me to link to it when we're done, but I could just write it myself if I'm, you want me to write it for you. So that's why my advice to Stephanie was, don't expect that the people who have come before you are going to automatically make it easy for you to have their readers. The win is to become your own distinct voice. Stephanie is 20 years younger than the rest of us. She's from a different part of the world than the rest of us. She sees the world differently than the rest of us. We're waiting for a Stephanie, not somebody who's just going to report what the old white guys have to say. Tina at Swissmas now has more readers than I do. So if she comes to me and says, I'd like to ask you four questions about your new book, just selfishly, never mind my part that I like Tina to succeed because she came from zero to that many in no time, I'm saying, oh, that's like being asked to be on TV. I'm more likely to do that because those are new readers, more people who are there to hear Tina, not there because I'm there. So I'm honored to be asked to do that. And it's not just a numbers game. It's more of a point of view game. And when someone has a distinctive point of view, uh, you know, a Mark Maron or a Bob Lefsitz, those people honor you more when they want to talk to you than someone who's just taking good notes. All right, I'll try both. Uh, the first is just a simple technique that only works for Fortune 5000 corporations or bureaucratic nonprofits. And it only works when you have uh, an offer of significant benefit to the institution you're trying to sell to. Those are the two key precursors. But that's fairly common. Right? So what you do, it's from a book called Selling to Vito. You um, write a single page letter that describes not what is on offer, but what sort of offer it is. Meaning, I have something I want to tell you about. It takes 10 minutes and it's going to increase the sales of Microsoft Word by 15%. Or I'm launching a new company. It is in the intersection of this and this. And I need to find out who at your nonprofit can mention this, you know, what we're doing. So it leaves mystery to the question. It is not enough of a question that you can get a no. We thought about what you just said. The answer is no. It's, are you interested in hearing about the thing that's behind this curtain? So that's the question. And then what you do is you use their website and you find six people in the organization who might be in charge of the answer to this question. Senior vice president of this, vice president of this, director of this, vice president of that. And you list all the names in the two line of this letter. Okay? And you print six copies and you highlight one name for each of the six copies. You with me so far? Then you take the six letters. This still works in an electronic world. You take the six letters and you put them into six inter-office mail yellow things with the names or into just plain envelopes. And you write the person's name on the envelope. So now you have six envelopes. Steve Ballmer, Bill Gates, 
blah, 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 blah. Six envelopes. Then you call the company. So far you've invested two minutes of your time, right? You call the company and you ask for the mailroom. And whoever answers the phone in the mailroom, you say, what's your name? The guy tells, tells you his name. You hang up. You say, thank you very much. You hang up. And you get a FedEx envelope. And you FedEx the guy in the mailroom the six envelopes with a post-it that says, please distribute. And what happens is, it's his job to distribute them. So six, <laughs> six of these letters get delivered to the six people you're trying to reach. We know that they're going to get delivered. The person opens it, they see the other five people who got the letter, right? There is no recourse other than contacting the other five people to find out who's going to handle this. Because they don't want to write you a yes, I want to take a meeting and find out what someone else wrote them a no, go away, right? Or that three of them offered you separate meetings. So one guy gets assigned to deal with you. And often, that person will either call you or send you a note saying, what's up? And what you've just done is you've found one person who's willing to give you one minute to find out what it is that you have that they really need to hear about. Now it's up to you. But it's so much more effective than spamming people with their email or leaving 100 messages on their voicemail system because what you've done is you've respected the hierarchy and everyone in the system has done what they need to do. So it's nothing I do very often. But every time I ever did it, it worked. Well, what's the book called? Selling to VITL. And the entire book is that. It depends on what you and your family need for peace of mind. My basic suggestion for the typical person who wants to do this is to act like you have no money now to eat black beans and brown rice every single night, never go to a restaurant, never go to a movie, move to a smaller house, sell your car, get a used thing, just cut your cost to zero while you're still making what you're making now, and take 80 or 90% of the money and just pay it into an account. Get to the, the number in the account to a number where you and your spouse and your family will be happy for X number of months without any income. And it might be that you have to do this for three years before the amount of money in that account is big enough. Right? But you're still eating black beans and rice every single night. So you're paying the price early, not paying it late. And then there will come a day when you say the combination of my freelance income, my project income, and my hope is greater than my need for this other thing I have going on. And when that moment comes, then with a, a happy heart, you can go and take the leap. It's so much easier today to make money from multiple streams of income than it was 20 years ago that there are lots of ways you can string together Saturday work, Sunday work, evening work so that it gets closer and closer to the day you can say, I don't need the security of this paycheck. But if you have a spouse, it's really their call because if they're not in, it's painful to take the leap when they're not ready. Well, I think a lot of it depends on the industry. It's very easy to imagine that the beachhead is, like when I was at Yo-Yo Don and we, we signed up American Express and Procter and & Gamble, like, what else do you want? We're going to MasterCard next. And MasterCard looked at that and said, we don't care. We don't care that American Express is a happy customer who wrote your testimony. We don't care that Procter & Gamble is in. So suddenly my beachhead wasn't worth a thing. 
right? Except that they had paid their bills. So it's very easy to seduce yourself into thinking there's this magic customer. I'm not sure in many industries it works that way quite the way it used to. Um, technology industries are a little different because there are people in the technology business who want their competitors to adopt you and they will actively promote you because they want everyone to be digitizing this or working this way. It helps them. But in general, I think customers is a customer and a cash flow beats a beachhead any day. Because once you have enough cash flow, then you have the power to look a recalcitrant customer uh, prospect in the eye and say, maybe this isn't for you and start leaving. And when you say that, all bets are off. They chase you, right? They're like, what? You can live without us? Suddenly, they want to work with you. So as we talked about in the ship it thing, you can't have a beautiful website that includes everything on the same day you could have just your blog. That one would take a year and one would take a week, right? There's almost nothing that's worth waiting the year for if the alternative is to go for a week and interact with the market. That's what I'm saying. Right, so the people who come to me and say, I've just spent four years writing this book, now I need to start a blog, have made a huge mistake. They should have spent four years writing their blog, and now they're going to write a book. Because it's the four years that they were silent were four years they didn't get to interact with people who could trust them now that they're ready to have a book. Right? For you, there's only 225 people who trust you. Your number one goal is to get to 2,000 people who trust you. And you need to start tomorrow. And a beautiful website is fine, but it's not going to be worth waiting for if you haven't already built your way to the 2000. Love that question. All right, I'll give you the short answer. As someone who's married to a lawyer, friends with former lawyers, lived in the law school dorm for a year. When I was in college, my partner, me, and a third guy started a company we raised $5,000 from each other to start it. We spent $3,000 on legal fees. It was stupid. A legal document might be an important marketing tool in certain business cases or at a skateboarding park where the presence of a dense block of text makes you look more official. If that's the case, you might want to buy that or get a facsimile by stealing it because stealing legal documents is always a fine thing to do. But generally, the goal is not get sued, not to have a legal document in case you get sued. So you can write a legal document that will help you not get sued. And what, the way you do that is two things. One, you write it in really clear English so you both know what you actually agreed on. That dramatically decreases the chance you're going to get sued because most of the time people sue because they are hurt and angry not because they think they can make money. Well, if they know what they signed, they're way less likely to feel hurt and angry because they know what they signed. And number two, which I've been using forever, is you put a clause in that says, any disagreements we will settle by binding informal arbitration. You pick a lawyer, I pick a lawyer, the two lawyers pick a third lawyer. That lawyer spends three hours looking at memos that we both write and decides who's right. End of discussion. Once that's in there, then both sides understand they can't outspend the other one because the whole transaction is only going to cost $1,800. It's 
three hours of this lawyer's time, right? And so rather than risking a crapshoot at that, they try to find a way to agree with each other because it's just not worth it because they know they can't bully their way to victory if they're wrong. So the combination of, look, I'm me, and this is what we are agreeing on, and by the way, if I missed something, we'll settle it this way, really goes a long way to helping you out. And the last thing I would say is as you go forward and you get bigger, what you want is a lawyer who works with you the following way. You write down what you want an agreement to do. You do all the hard work of saying what you want it to do. And then you go to the lawyer and say, all I am paying you to do is make an agreement that does this. I am not asking your advice about how I should win. I'm just asking you to make the agreement do this. And it's going to be a long time before you need what Google has. Google has so many millions of users that they have to worry about edge cases. You don't have to worry about edge cases because the combination of your handshake and your arbitration eliminates all of it. But I'm not a lawyer, and if I'm wrong, I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> so here's the thing about the vast majority of imprinted junk is it's invisible. And the reason it's invisible is it's expected. So think about everybody here. How many of the people in this room did you shake hands with? Almost everybody. How many do you remember shaking hands with? No one. Because handshakes are invisible. On the other hand, if when you shake hands with people, you know, you're going like this, right? Like, people are going to remember that for a really long time because you did something that was unexpected. Okay? So the, the challenge, you know, when you came to something with only 20 people in it, you didn't expect a custom mug with to the agenda on it. That's why I did it that way. Okay? So because it's, well, maybe you'll bring two of these home. I hope you will. Um, so when you think about how are you going to give people something that they're going to remember, right? So you could, for example, go to the bank and get 100 Susan B. Anthony dollars. Or not even Susan B. Anthony, but go to a, a coin store and pay $2 for 100 John F. Kennedy big giant things. And people say, what do you do? And you hand them a big fat coin. It doesn't even have your name on it. And they say, what's this? Now you have a chance to tell them a story. I can't, off the top of my head, make up a story about why you would give them a Susan B. Anthony dollar, but you could probably come up with a good one. Right? And what are they going to do? Spend it? No, they're not going to spend it. They might make it their good luck coin. In fact, you could say, always keep this in your pocket because blah, blah, blah. There is, in my brag, a coin I gave to every single person the day I sold my company. And there's a guy, Ted, I see him in New York probably once a year at random on the street. And it's been 10 years. Every single time he reaches into right, he still has it. And he can tell me the story I told him when I gave him the coin. Okay? So the point is, it doesn't have to be some fancy thing from China or imprinted. It can be an object. It can be a popsicle stick. And you're just always giving out lollipops or popsicle sticks. And there's a story with it. And you, that is the icebreaker that you use to be memorable as opposed to all that trade show junk that means absolutely nothing. Okay, so I have three posts about this, so you can Google it on my site. The short version is you start with two kinds of names. Names that mean something, names that don't. Names that don't. Amazon, Starbucks, Nike, Apple. They don't mean anything until the company comes to exist. Whereas workflow, I'm making that one up, 
a company that does workflow solutions, meant something before the company even existed. If you come up with a fanciful name, it's a blank slate, and you get to fill it with meaning. Right? The bad news is, for the first year, you've got to explain what you do. On the other hand, if you come up with uh, a name that means something, then you don't have to explain as much at the beginning what you do, and it fits into a box. The vernacular in an industry matters. On the web, if you have a name that means something, people don't think as much of you in the investment community because all the people who came before you, the Googles and the Yahoos and the Ebays, didn't mean anything. So when you say, we are salesforce.com, like, oh, you must not be a big idea because you told me what you do already. Right? So the position in the minds of the investor journalist shifts based on which name you pick. Second thing is URLs still matter because a lot of people don't know how they work and know to type .ly at the end or whatever. So there's still more value for a consumer brand if it ends in .com. So then you've got to think about what can I get. Well, every English word, every one with six or fewer letters is taken and I think seven or fewer letters taken. Every single word. So it's going to be expensive, but you might decide it's worth it to go buy this. And I'm going to tell you the 10-second version of Squidoo is going to be called Fisheye. And fisheye.com was taken. A guy owned a fishing boat uh, in the Caribbean. And I offered him $10,000 for fisheye.com. And he said no, because it was the name of his one fishing boat. Anyway, flight got canceled. I misdirected my plans. I ended up on the Cayman Islands teaching my son how to scuba dive. It was right after a hurricane. We're driving to the hotel. Shipwrecked on the shore, I saw the fisheye, the boat. <laughs> Literally. Saw the boat. True story. And, but by then, I already named the company Squidoo, so fisheye didn't happen. Um, anyway, so the easiest way to get a domain is to take two English words and put them together. Right? Red eye, fish eye, upside down, you know, this is where the cool people hang out.com. Because length isn't your issue. Length is free. You can have it be as long as you want, as long as we can remember it. And so, again, depending on how big you want to be and how you want your customers to perceive you early on, you're going to pick a name that satisfies those goals. You will not listen to your family, you will not listen to your trademark lawyer, you will not listen to anybody who thinks. They should tell you stuff because everyone has an opinion about your name and especially about your logo. It's none of their business. You just like ignore them. That's not the point. They don't know what it's going to mean. The same way you don't have a poll before you name your kid. You just name your kid and then their name comes to mean something over time. Okay, so on that note, we're going to wrap up for the day. You don't have to come tomorrow. I'm not promising anything tomorrow. There won't even be muffins here. But I did offer that I'll be around and I will be around. I just want to say, if I can find it, oh, here it is. The last thing I want to say to you. Um, oh, where'd it go? Here it is. I made a t-shirt for my new book. I'm going to show you what it says. And I think you're all ready to hear it. This is where you need to head. If you can't read it in the back. Fly closer to the sun. Nothing bad will happen, I promise. Thank you guys for coming. I'll see you later. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Ackerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com.